When we hear Christmas, there are many things that come to our minds. I think about my own experiences. I can be somewhat nostalgic, and so my mind goes back to my childhood and some of those experiences I had as a kid. Certain Christmases always stand out of gifts that you received and places you went. I think of being Christmas Eve, I would typically have gone to my Aunt Sharon's house, and all of the Matthew side would gather over. We would eat three hours later than we were supposed to eat uh, because the meal didn't get done in time, but that's okay. We would be bored out of our minds because we didn't get to open presents until after we ate, and uh, so it was always a struggle. Uh, but I think of food, and I think of family, and I think of friends, and even in more recent years, I think of my own kids and our own experiences with Christmas. But whatever comes to your mind when you think of Christmas, there would be no Christmas without the birth of Christ. It's what we celebrate. And as John just said in his remarks, it's, it's easy for that to get lost in the commotion and the busyness that happens this time of year. And so I'm appreciative that we've had a couple of weeks, Aaron, last week in Matthew 1, and our time this week in Luke 2 to remember the birth of Christ. So if you would read with me, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field and they were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Where would we be without it? We thank you that you have not only revealed yourself to us, but you revealed to us these critical events of human history. Help us now as we consider these truths today to not only be enlightened, but to be encouraged. Lord, I pray that those who are here today and they are not at peace, that they would leave today at peace. And for those who are hopeless, that they would be filled with hope. For those who are doubting, that they would be filled and encouraged with faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin where Luke begins with the historical setting of these events. If you've ever studied the Gospel of Luke uh, in chapter 1 and the first few verses, uh, he explains that he's writing this Gospel, this account uh, so that Theophilus might have greater faith. And so he's encouraging us in these areas. And so the history 
is important. I know for some of you that causes a yawn to, to build in your throat when you think of maybe history, but we want to consider what Luke encourages us to consider this morning. And first is this, he introduces us to the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, meaning the honored one. The Caesar at this time was Octavian. Octavian reigned from 27 B.C., all the way to 14 AD, and he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius had adopted Octavian and made him his own son. And several years after the assassination, the famous assassination of Julius Caesar, Octavian would take the throne of the emperor of Rome. And he's known historically for being, bringing peace to the Roman world. He was a very organized individual. He was a very ordered individual. And that leads to the second historical point that is made, the census that would be taken. Taking census was common enough in the Roman Empire. If you have an empire that large, you have to keep track of things, and things do need to be organized. And so the census would typically be taken for two reasons. One, for military purposes, who's of military age, and the other purpose would be for taxes. Well, what we know is that the Jews were exempt from military service under their agreement with Rome as a part of the Roman Empire. So we know that this is for the purpose of taxation, is what Luke points out in his historical account. Another bit of history is another name that's mentioned, one that's probably not as familiar to you as the name Caesar, Octavian. Uh, but Quirinius is mentioned in verse 2. He's an administrator, a soldier who would eventually be appointed to the Roman council in 12 BC. He ruled in the area of Syria. And I, I say this because th these names for us, they, they don't really hit home in a sense, but for Luke's original audience, they certainly would. Uh, if I were to say George Bush, uh, Barack Obama, or, or Ronald Reagan, those are names that, that resonate with us in our own generation because we recognize them to be leaders. That's the case for these individuals. Luke is helping them set this in the frame of their history, their very recent history. But there is one more bit of information in verse 3. It mentions this. All went to be registered, each to his hometown. Now, this was not a normal practice during a Roman census. Uh, what most historians and scholars believe happened here is this is a, a way that the Romans would soften the blow of taxation by mixing it with some of the other things that were common for the Jews to do. The Jews would often go back to their hometown, the town of their lineage. They were well connected to their tribes and their family and their kin. And so it would soften the blow of taxation if they were able to go, in a sense, and have a bit of a family reunion along the way. And so uh, this is the way in which we would understand they had to go and be taxed. And so what's the real impact of all of this history? Why, why does Luke bring this up? Why do we spend time dealing with it this morning? First, it's proof that I believe God means to use to strengthen our faith in Him and His Word. This is not an obscure story that's pulled out of the history that we know in our own world. These are historical individuals, and this happened within the measure of that history. But more than that, it's proof that God sovereignly reigns over history. We, we've learned this week after week through the fall as we've been studying through the book of Daniel, uh, that, that God is in control of even these nations that are rising and falling. Aaron did an incredible job last week helping us to understand God's work within history in that lineage 
of bringing about the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. I think of this verse in Proverbs 21 that rings so clear here in Luke chapter 2 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Why does Octavian decide to do a census? <laughs> because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills so that his will would be accomplished in getting Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. So let's talk about that. Uh, Joseph presently lives in Nazareth. That is in the Galilee region. If you have a Bible with, with a map in the back, I give you permission to look at that map, and you can see that in the northern portion of Israel is Galilee, right around what we know as the Sea of Galilee. And, and just south of there is Jerusalem, Bethlehem, as the text suggests, this is the lineage of Joseph. They're traveling from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, to this obscure town. But notice in the text, and maybe you already did, how Luke seems to go out of his way to, to point out these connections to David. <laughs> to David. It happened last week in that, in that genealogy. There's, there's connections that are mentioned to both Abraham and to David. It's important. We understand this. He uses the term, first of all, the, the city of David, the house and the, the lineage of David. And then the connection is of great importance because of promises that we find in the Old Testament. I'll put these on the screen behind me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is speaking directly to David and he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes and the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put back, who I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. Now certainly we understand that, that the prophecy that's being spoken here is related to Solomon, the son of David, but, but as he goes and looks beyond Solomon, who would build the temple, who would sin and have iniquity and be disciplined by the Lord, would not be cut off, he goes beyond and says, but your kingdom will last forever. There will come one after Solomon. There will come one from your own flesh that will rule, connecting it to David. Or how about this? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father. And a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. One will come from this lineage. Joseph's adopted son, Jesus, would be the fulfillment of these promises made to David some 900 years earlier than the experience in Luke chapter 2. This is what Aaron encouraged us with last week, which I'll say again. If you haven't listened to that, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But Joseph isn't alone on his journey. Verse 5, it reveals that Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph, has traveled with him to go to the city of Bethlehem. So, so let's talk a little bit about this betrothal. They're technically married. They're, they're contractually married at this point. 
But because of the conception of Jesus, this immaculate conception, this virgin birth, the words of Gabriel, they have not consummated their marriage. And so Luke is reminding us that this is a virgin birth. Mary has not known a man. She's pregnant. The verse seems to skip the difficulty of the journey. It's not just a stroll to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's about 90 miles. And most of it's uphill. And they didn't have highways or roads. These are difficult things. And I was thinking about this even this morning. I don't know if you remember when, when Tyler was here uh, and he spoke to us from Psalm 121. He talked about the hills being a, a dangerous and a difficult place, a, a negative thing. They had to travel through those hills to get to Jerusalem, and then just a few miles south of Jerusalem is the city of Bethlehem. If Mary is riding on an animal, which we would assume she would be at some point, it would be extremely uncomfortable. Ninety miles would be from here to Clinton, something along those lines. That's a pretty good trek if you're on foot, you're walking, you're pregnant. And so many ask the question, why did Mary go? Why didn't she just stay? Uh, was she to be registered too because they're betrothed? Was it to avoid the, the gossip and the ridicule that may have been circulating back in the little town of Nazareth? Was it because neither of them wanted to miss the birth of the baby? We're not sure. The text doesn't say. We're left with suggestions. But what we do know is that she's there because God had determined it to be so. And this is the beauty of the story. The census that was ordered by the Caesar was not just something that would happen. It was something that would set in motion the plan that would get them to Bethlehem so that what Micah speaks of in Micah 5 would be fulfilled. Notice these verses. Micah 5 verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little, too little, to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The one from ancient days will come from you. So Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem, this sovereignly appointed town. All the pieces have fallen into place. The plan of redemption that was made before the foundation of the world had even been laid is falling into place. The promise that came as early as Genesis 3.15 that there would be one of the seed of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. The plan is coming together. Verse 6 says, while they were there, the time for her to give birth came. Amazingly, the story of the birth of Jesus recorded here in Luke and also in Matthew is told with great simplicity. There's not a lot of detail, which has led to much speculation and much imagination over the years. Not saying that's bad. So, Let's just take some time and point out what we, what we don't know, what we, what we do know. First, we, we don't know how long they had been in town at this point. They could have been there for a couple of weeks. 
They could have been there uh, for a couple of days, a few hours, maybe minutes. We don't know. The drama of minutes sounds fun, doesn't it? They just get there. That's kind of the way we think of it in our mind. The text simply doesn't tell us. The second the story is typically told that they arrive in the town and the, the hotel is full and, and maybe even in the version we have in our minds, the, the innkeeper's really rude and mean to them. Uh, well, Bethlehem is a small town. They didn't have hotels. They didn't really have hotels back in that day or hostels. In the Jewish culture, it was just simply dependent upon if you have extra space in your house, you'll put somebody up in that extra space in your house. That's why the calls that we see in Old Testament law are for this hospitality and, and, and inviting people in and being welcoming. And so obviously when they get into town, they're not looking for Motel 6. They're just trying to find a place to lodge. And there's not any extra space in town. There's no mention of an innkeeper at all. And when we think of Bethlehem, uh, we think of something very small. And I think in our minds, we might think, well, was that like Billings or Marionville? Uh, more like McKinley. How many of you know where McKinley is, right? Anybody? Okay, we got like six hands going up. That's like a, a, a couple of places over here where two roads cross and there's like five houses around it. That's probably more like what we're dealing with in Bethlehem. It's just a collection, a small community of people. Most of the people would have land outside of the city. But what do we know? What we know is that when it came time for Mary to give birth, there was no place for them to stay. It left them with the option of a stable of sorts. Even that's assumed, and we simply assume that because where did they lay the baby? In a manger. It's a feeding trough. So we just simply assume they're in some sort of animal shelter where a feeding trough would be. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, he's laid in a manger common practice, no robes, no magi. I know in our nativity scenes, it's fun to have them there that night, but they weren't there. They didn't get there till he was older. They did have a place to stay at that point. I'm not saying you got you to gotta move them. I think sometimes we put them across the room like, okay, they're, they're on their way. They'll get there. But, but the reason I bring that up is because this wasn't a, there weren't crowns and gold on this night. What we find out later is the only people that came to visit were shepherds and they're, they're low-tier people in society. Spend all of their time outside and with the sheep and they smell bad. This is a humble birth. Humble birth. I've always liked how John MacArthur summarizes the humbleness of the birth. He says this, When Jesus came into the world, he was born in the most comfortless conditions, a smelly Filthy, chilly shelter surrounded by animals, we would assume. It was a fitting entrance for the Son of Man who had nowhere to lay his head, Luke chapter 9. Or the one who was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him, John 1. For the one who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2. Or for the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. By bearing our sins in his body on the cross so that we 
might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus' humble birth was appropriate for the one who came to die as our substitute. For the one who came to take the wretchedness of our sin upon himself and to bear the weight and the burden of sin and hell of the world. He came lowly, he came humble, he came wretched. Consider the humility of Jesus. We're to follow his steps. If we're a follower of Christ, it means we follow and live the way that he lived, and he lived his life in humility. We're to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. We're to esteem others more important than ourselves. That's the Christmas spirit. It's a spirit of giving. It's a spirit of selflessness. J.I. Packer writes this. He says, For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor spending and being spent so that they might enrich their fellow man, giving time and trouble and care and concern to do good to others and not just to friends, but in whatever way there seems to be a need. Recently, I got an email from the school district. We manage money as a church uh, for some of the other churches uh, to use to help people with utility assistance and things along those lines. And I got an email from some of the social workers at the school about a family with some kids and their electricity was about to get shut off and their water was going to get shut off. And, but when there's kids involved, that's, that's really hard for me to ever say, no, we're not going to help you. And so I, I often call the individual. I try to get an idea of what's going on because there may be other things that we can do as a church or other groups in the community can help in some way. And so I made that phone call, and sometimes I'll even go on social media. Um, that's a window into a person's life, isn't it? And I'll look on social media and just see, hey, who, who are these people? And I went on this individual side, and I saw some things on there really right at the top that were disparaging against Christianity and religion. For a split second, I thought, well, I don't want to help that person. But that's not the Spirit of Christ, is it? The Spirit of Christ says that's the person you need to help. Those are the people we're called to. That's why Jesus came, to help those who were, were anti and against and rebellious. Those are the people he hung out with. Who are those people in your life? You may, you may think, I have to sit around the table with them later this week, or we would say, you get to sit around the table with them. How can you serve them? How can you humble yourself so that you might live out the Spirit of Christ representing him amongst those family and friends. Who will you serve? Well, immediately the story, the scene changes significantly in verse 8. We're whisked away, not too far, just outside of the city. It says the same region. There are shepherds who are watching over their flocks, possibly a couple miles outside of Bethlehem where the shepherds would be. 
They live in the fields because they protect the sheep from the dangers that would exist. And imagine the stillness of those nights. No light pollution. The only noise you're really hearing is animals around you. What incredible peaceful that would be. Well, their peace is interrupted (laughs) by an angel who would appear. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And I would like to say, hey, imagine that. But we can't. There's no possible way for us to comprehend what they experience in this moment. We do have other instances where Daniel has seen angels and Zechariah saw an angel in Luke chapter 1 and other examples where Mary and Joseph. What we do know is they are very afraid. So were Daniel and Zechariah and everybody. That's why anytime an angel appears, what's the first words out of the angel's mouth? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Easy for the angel to say, I suppose. Well, they're terrified when the angel says, don't fear. Fear not, verse 10. Or read these words with me. You don't have to read them out loud, but follow along at least. Fear not, behold, or, or listen to me. Listen to my words, because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What is this good news that will produce such joy? Unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find Him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Unto you, this is the gift that is given to you, to humanity. Notice this collection of names and titles that that the angel throws in here. The city of David, once again, making this connection with the prophetic words of the Old Testament. This is the place. You're here. The Savior, the one who would deliver, the one who would rescue, the one who would redeem, the one who would do what no human since Adam has ever been able to do. The Christ. Oh, that word would trigger something in their mind. This is the the Messiah? The anointed one? The one that we've been waiting for? The one that all of the promises of the Old Testament lead to? He's here. Not only is He the Messiah, but He is the Lord, the sovereign ruler of all. The angel provides the physical signs, very uncommon signs. You'll find him in a manger, not a place you would expect to find the Messiah. But the show in the field isn't quite done because all of a sudden the angels appear around the shepherds. Hundreds, maybe thousands of angels appear and they're singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. They're worshiping. Jesus had come to bring peace. That prophecy from Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. You see, this worship-filled promise that the angels declare that night outside of Bethlehem to shepherds. To shepherds. 
is the message that is echoed through the centuries. It's the message that was spoken first in the synagogues in the first century across Judea and to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. It's the message that would be proclaimed in the homes of these Christ followers. It's the message that's been proclaimed in churches through the centuries, through song and through sermon and through words of encouragement and prayers that are prayed. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace. It's the message that we continue to proclaim today. You see, Jesus is not just another way to attain peace. Jesus is not just another thing we can hope in. He is peace. He is hope. It's not just a a side gig for him or for us. It's who he is. It's who he is. And as we've already talked about in the beginning of our service, we live in a world of unrest. We live in a world filled with pain and heartache. Half the commercials you see on TV are about things to help you with your anxiety, things to help with your depression, things to help you manage this cruel, cruel world. Jesus brings peace to the anxious. Jesus brings joy to the overwhelmed and the despondent. Jesus is that answer. How does he do that? Well, first he does it because he saves. Most of our despondency and most of our struggle with our, our guilt and our, our doubt and our shame is a result of our own sinfulness. How does Jesus address our sinfulness? He says, I'll take it on myself. I'll give you new life. I'll give you new birth. He saves. He justifies us. This is what Ephesians 2 says. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility abolishing the laws of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create Himself one new man in place so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing hostility. By his righteous life, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, Jesus offers us peace with the Father. Restoration to a relationship that our sin is broken. It's the greatest peace we could ever know. It's the peace that that leads to the hope that we have in eternal life. That we will one day be fully restored, fully new. 
not only does He give us peace because He saves, He gives us peace because when we look at His own birth and the circumstances even surrounding it that come together, we have peace because we know He has a plan. The pain that you may be experiencing here today, it's not a waste. It's not without purpose. The pain that we go through in this life and the the frustrations and the burdens all have a purpose. He's working these things together for good, as we learned about recently. That brings peace to me. I hope that brings peace to you. Because it does give me an answer when, man, the week just doesn't go how I wanted it to go. Or the year doesn't go how I wanted it to go. God is doing something, and I know this because of Christ. I have peace in Him. Do you know Him today? Do you know Him? Has He brought peace to your relationship with the Father? Has He brought peace to the day-to-day situations of your life? See, the birth of Jesus is good news in a world of bad news. Jesus is making all things new. This Prince of Peace will return. He will come again, not as a baby. He won't be laid in a manger. This time He will come again in power and glory. And it won't just be shepherds who notice. All the world will take note. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. He is Lord. He is the King of Kings. And as I was finishing up my Bible reading plan for the year, just the other day I was in Revelation chapter 21 where it says that He will wipe the tears from their eyes and death will be no more and neither will there be mourning or crying, no more pain because the former things have passed away. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. That's what we remember today. Do you know the peace that is ours in Christ? I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me this morning. I just want to give us a moment to pray and reflect. If you're here today and you have questions about this Savior, you have questions about Jesus, you want to know more, We have folks that would love to answer your questions, pray with you. You're welcome now or even at the end of the service to make your way to the prayer room that's here to my right. We would love to answer those questions. Maybe your prayer right now is just, God, would you steal my anxious heart? Would you remind me that you have purposes, you have plans, you're doing things that will ultimately culminate in the former things passing away and all things being new. Whatever you need to do this morning, whatever that prayer needs to be, I want you to take a moment here and pray. Father, we thank you for these friends and family who have gathered here today. Spirit, we pray that you would bring the conviction, the encouragement, that you wouldn't let up on either, Lord, whatever the situations may be. If there's 
those who are being convicted of their, their sin, their, they've been dismissive of Jesus, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance and bring them to the hope that we have. And Lord, for those who are here and it's just been burdensome, I pray that Luke 2 and these truths would be life-giving, encouraging. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the thing, the, the person, the Savior that we celebrate today, tomorrow. We rejoice, not just in a baby's birth. We rejoice in that life and that death and that resurrection and that intercession. We rejoice in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will continue to, as the angel started so many years ago, preach the message, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. That we would continue to proclaim the gospel message, the good news of Jesus for the next generation and the generation after that until the return and ultimately the final restoration where every tear will be wiped away and all things will be new. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.